The Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association presents Top of the Stretch, a podcast that looks at harness racing in the Buckeye State. The Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association has set up a PayPal donation portal for those that want to help Ohio horsemen in need during the COVID-19 crisis. All money donated will go to the OHHA Horsemen's Benevolent Fund. Contributors can earmark their donation for either the Equine or Human Fund. Horsemen in need can apply for funds by completing an application, which is available on the OHHA website, OHHA.com. Thanks, and stay safe. Hello again, everyone. I'm Frank Fraz, the Outreach and Public Relations Coordinator for the Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association. And joining us today on Top of the Stretch is Kate Sandstrom-Moore, a nurse practitioner at University Hospitals and the Cleveland Medical Center, and also owner of Standard Breads with her husband, Rory Moore, who is also a nurse. And the two of them have been nurses for 38 years. And Kate, welcome to Top of the Stretch today. Oh, good morning, Frank, and thank you for having me. First off, uh, I want to thank you and your husband for being on the front lines as we all go through the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and uh, fighting that and trying to keep everybody healthy and safe. Tell us a little bit about what you do as a nurse practitioner. Hey, I have been a nurse practitioner for almost 20 years now, and primarily I have worked in the field of oncology most of my career. I had four years in critical care as a nurse, but then as a nurse practitioner, I worked in nursing homes for two years, and also uh, since uh, becoming a nurse practitioner, primarily in oncology. Uh, I work in radiation oncology currently at the Seidman Cancer Center at University Hospitals. I uh, see patients who have, uh, who are and have gone through uh, radiation therapy. When this pandemic started, there were a lot of questions about how serious it would be and how this was going to affect medical care. Is this what you originally expected when you first heard about COVID-19, what we're seeing right now? Well, I think that's a really complicated question. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody ever really thought uh, or believed we could ever have uh, a pandemic such as this in our lifetime. And I, I think myself and many of my colleagues are, uh, who have been on the forefront of this are just uh, amazed at how fast this has gone through the world. Uh, in addition to that, it feels like sometimes we're living in the twilight zone or some sort of fantasy uh, novel. Um, I think when it first came out, um, many of us felt far long before uh, that announcement that it, it truly was a pandemic, the way it was moving through the world so quickly. And I think probably it started long before uh, the first cases were announced uh, from Wuhan province. Uh, it is uh, thought to be really early December and possibly November that this really started. You work in a cancer center, and that leads to separate challenges during this time. Living in Ohio, we are all lucky. We are really living in the lap of luxury compared to places such as New York um, and some of the other states, uh, as well as some of the other countries around the world. Uh, doc, uh, I think Governor DeWine and Amy Acton have done a fantastic job of trying to keep this under control in our state. And I think living in the Cleveland area, as well as even the Columbus area with Ohio State and the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, we have really... they. 
they both of the hospitals have really stepped up to the plate and we really put things into effect uh, very quickly. I was uh, quite impressed with how fast our hospital moved with making sure we had PPE and many algorithms were developed where we decided what patients, uh, and, and this is where it became really difficult working in a cancer center. These people have been diagnosed with a terminal illness possibly and we're having to stall their therapy because of this, this pandemic. So it has been really heart-wrenching uh, in many cases. I know I think the first couple weeks of this, I was still working uh, at, down at the main campus, and I, as I was calling patients and talking to patients, one, time, one day I just stopped and just started crying. I mean, you, you can't imagine what these people are going through um, who need to have surgeries, who need to have medical care, and they're afraid to come to the hospital, and we can't treat patients who have life-threatening diseases because they're immunocompromised and we can't risk them getting COVID. So steps had to be taken where we really separated what we call the clean hospital from more the, uh, the for lack of a better word, the dirty hospital, which it really isn't. It's just the, the clean versus you know possible COVID uh, patients. So we're keeping our patients really restricted. Uh, our cancer center is pretty well locked down. No visitors are allowed in the hospital and certainly not in the cancer center. We've now instituted a, a program where, um, which I have been in charge of in our department, uh, of trying to get uh, every single one of our patients going through radiation therapy. And you know we have um, you know, up to 100 patients uh, any one day going through therapy at the main campus. Every patient must be tested prior to starting their treatment. And out of the uh, 100 patients I think we treated, uh, or when we first started this the first week, we, we tested 100 patients. Only one of those patients was positive, thank goodness. So it's a very strict process. Nurses are donned in uh, head-to-toe PPE, and um, they're kept in the room uh, during the day when they're testing. We've heard the horror stories regarding PP and lack of other equipment. Have your facilities had the necessary equipment, or was this a challenge you faced as well early on in this? The hospital has been very um, uh, good about PPE. Now, we first had, uh, if initially, we had a shortage, um, or we not really a shortage. We had a limited supply where we were really trying to keep uh, things uh, in in control. In fact, I know in my own department, we locked our masks and our N95 masks in a, in a locked office because people were starting to take them. And, uh, you know, as people do, they start hoarding when they're panicked. So, um, you know, we've instituted that. And I think in Ohio, we're lucky because the Battelle company came up with a process where uh, they can sterilize these N95 masks so everyone in the hospital is required to be fitted for an N95, and if you're using an N95 after a certain amount of time, we send it uh, through a process uh, where it is taken to the Patel uh, designated site. They take them and clean them. I know they barcode from every site where they're coming from so they know where to send them back to, and they send them back as a clean mask, and this can be done numerous times before uh, it uh, degrades the mask. You had talked about the early action from the hospitals. How important was that early action by the governor and Dr. Acton to make sure we didn't hit that level? It was extremely important, and I applaud, and I can tell you all of my colleagues applaud the efforts by 
Governor DeWine and Amy Acton. They have been phenomenal with this whole this whole pandemic. And uh, I don't think we would be where we are now had it not been for their early action. If you look at our states, you know, us compared to Michigan, Michigan just exploded with cases. Um, then uh, we compare Indiana's about the same as we are now. I think we're at 20, about 24,000 cases. And I know over the last couple of days, our cases in Ohio have really dropped. So um, hopefully that trend will continue with opening up more and more of the state. And, you know, Kentucky, I think, is around 7,000. So um, all these horse states are in pretty good shape. <laughs> The governor is trying to reopen the state, as you just mentioned, but we keep hearing of the second and third wave that is coming. Is it inevitable that we are going to face a second wave of this? You know, I think that's anybody's guess. I think we're probably going to see some increased cases. Uh, they already are seeing uh, in Wuhan, where they have started opening things up, they're now having an increase. Uh, they have clusters of cases again. So um, I think, you know, this is, this is not over. It's not going to be over for some time. We have to have a vaccine. We have to have herd immunity. And uh, we have to have more testing in place as well as we have to start antibody testing. I know the state, there's a, a program that is a random program where they're going to be doing a test sample of 1,200 people throughout the state of Ohio to randomly test people for antibodies. Uh, and if I, it, it's a good idea to do that to see that kind of gives us an idea of what percent of our population in Ohio has been exposed to the virus and maybe carrying the antibodies without ever having the actual symptoms. So I think that's important to know that. Um, and I think moving forward, uh, you know, we're 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 coming up with more and more uh, treatments. Uh, U University Hospital, as well as the clinic, and I think some of the other hospitals in the state were uh, trialing this new antiviral drug that we use for Ebola called remdesivir, which uh, is showing to be effective. And hopefully we're going to be able to come up with more treatments such as that and have that available uh, to our medical facilities to, uh, to be able to treat the serious and really critical cases. Uh, you know, I watched a presentation in our hospital on uh, from the critical care units and what we're having to do to treat these patients. And you think of people being in a critical care unit uh, on a ventilator, they're laying in a bed nice, but what we're having to do with many of these people is turn them upside down. It's called proning patients. It's a technique we're using because their lungs are so full of fluid that they cannot get oxygen to the rest of the body. So they're turning them literally upside down. And it takes a whole staff of people to be able to hold that patient and turn that patient upside down and, and ventilate them and keep them secure upside down so that they can breathe and we can, we, can, uh, we can prevent them from dying. So some of the horror stories that we're hearing about what people are going through are actually true. Oh, absolutely, and don't ever think that it's not true. My goodness, this it, it, this is a this is a a, a, real, a real crisis that we are in. There is so much misinformation out there right now. What can people do to make sure they are getting the correct information? Listen to the the CDC, our governor Amy Acton. Follow those guidelines as outlined by the professionals. There is so much out there right now that is propaganda that, you know, there are still people out there who believe this is a hoax. And I can tell you this is not a hoax. This is the real deal. 
Um, people need to be wearing masks until it is said that we don't have to wear them anymore. And, and there's a lot of controversy about wearing masks. Um, it, it, and if you, you know, you can look at some of the data that says, well, viruses can still go through a cloth mask. That may be true, but the whole idea is to prevent droplet uh, exposure. So um, if everyone is wearing a mask, we are really going to limit the amount of, of exposure and droplet uh, exposure that uh, we can pass from person to person. Maintaining social distance is really important. There are uh, certain cloth masks that you can make that, you, that uh, actually if you go to university hospitals, uh, uh, website, there's a uh, this segment on there on how to make a mask uh, with a pocket in it, and you can and they actually give you a pattern for any of those ladies out there that are sewers. I've been making them myself. Um, you you can put a coffee filter in, which will actually help filter even more. Uh, you know, if you're in uh, close contact, uh, social distancing is is really important. So keeping that six foot, uh, limiting social gatherings to you know smaller numbers. So um, all of this is really important, and it is important to wear masks. Uh, there are still people out there that are not wearing masks when they're out in in some of these public places, particularly the grocery stores and some of the other stores that we have to go in. You touched a little bit earlier on antibodies. Talk a little bit about that and how somebody might have already had this, not known they've had this. Are they now immune to it? We don't know that. We don't know how long the immunity lasts. We don't know if it makes people immune to it. Uh, that is, this is a novel, what they call a novel virus. This is something we have, uh, the human population has never seen. Uh, as you can see, it is, it is very virulent. Uh, it is 3.4 times uh, the death rate of the flu season. So if you have 1% uh, uh, deaths from the flu every year, we have 3.4% deaths from coronavirus. So this is a very virulent virus. We don't have any idea uh, how long the immunity lasts or if this is something that's going to, uh, you know, mutate. We, we, don't, we don't know that. It already has mutated to some degree, uh, there, uh, but it's still acting the same. So hopefully, you know, a vaccine is going to be uh, is what we need to, for further prevention. We hear of uh, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, you touched on Ohio State. All of these facilities are working as hard as they can to gather information. Um, how important is it that we're learning more about this virus every day? Oh, my goodness, it's, it's what we have to do. And I think there's probably more effort going towards this virus than any other disease right now. Uh, I know there's so many grants just in my own hospital uh, for our researchers, you know, who are working, uh, you know, tirelessly to come up with uh, treatments as well as uh, preventive uh, vaccines. Hopefully, um, some of these vaccines that are already uh, in, in development are going to be shown to be effective and will be available uh, at the end of this year. That That is my hope, although... You know, that's still very limited. We, we, we really don't know when the vaccines are going to be available. We have to know that they're safe to give to humans first. Moving forward, what recommendations do you have for people to stay safe? Okay, so the recommendations, these are my top uh, recommendations. Wearing a mask when you're out in public. 
washing your hands frequently uh, using soap and water. And remember, 20 seconds washing with soap. The soap does uh, uh, kill the virus. Uh, also using hand sanitizer. And if this is any time in your life when you want to be OCD, be OCD. And that means being obsessive about your, uh, about your, your hand hygiene, avoiding touching your face, other things uh, that you want to think about touching where many people have, uh, where other people have touched, money. Money is a huge one. Paper money, uh, coins, all of those things. Anytime you handle them, after you've handled them, you, if, you're, if you're able to wash your hands, wash your hands. If not, carry your hand sanitizer with you. Just be using your hand sanitizer. If you're at the track, guys, you know, keep one in your pocket so that you, you can at least always be using your hand sanitizer. Um, the other thing are pens, communal pens. We don't think about that as much, but that's another thing that you want to avoid touching. Also, doorknobs, door handles, uh, water faucets, the handles of the water faucet. So after you've used the, you've washed your hands, use a paper towel to turn off the faucet and open the door. Um, you know, cleaning your services uh, around your home and your work environments on a regular basis with, you know, uh, a bleach solution. Uh, or, you know, bleach wipes. I know they're kind of scarce right now, but you can make your own bleach solution. Kate, thank you very much. Now, I want to touch base on something else. This has affected you and your horses and your husband's horses as well, but this is the second year now that you guys have faced kind of a challenge in your racing, as last year you had a tragedy with four of your young horses. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, my husband and I moved to Ohio. Well, actually, I'd been in Ohio. He was up in Michigan. We fell in love back in nursing school, but I was married at the time and had kids, so we never connected. We lost touch with each other, and after 30 years, we finally came together, and horse racing was dead in Michigan, so he moved to Ohio, and we got married and started our, our life together. And uh, for the first time in my husband's life, uh, he was able to have um, – uh, breed some horses with some top quality sires and one was Southwind Frank and the other were uh, three were Wishing Stone and at, as they became yearlings uh, we were ready to bring them in and start uh, breaking them and Easter Sunday at 2.30 2 in the morning police showed up at our door someone uh, had opened our back gate uh, which we have a track and at the back of our property we have a gate which we always have chained and there's a hose running through it. Horses are never back there. They don't ever bother that back there. They're always at the front where their running is. But that gate was wide open, and those horses were herded. And it was very obvious because there were two sets of, of tracks going up one side of the track, two sets going up the other side, and out our driveway, a half mile from the back of the track to the road. They had, And then they had turned down the road, all of them together, and were almost to a side road, when a woman who a young woman who was driving her car at two thirty in the two o'clock in the morning just didn't see them, uh, I think she was falling asleep. We're not really sure what happened, but she hit them and killed all four of them. Uh, she was thankfully not injured, but all four horses were uh, were killed. I don't. I, I have never seen anything like it. And I, my husband, I think, uh, is still suffering from PTSD. That really put us back quite a bit with our, you know, our business prospects and our, our five-year goal. So, and those are horses we'll never have the opportunity to breed again because Wishing Stone, as you know, is now in France. 
uh, we just don't have that opportunity, and it's just been a crisis for us. Uh, so uh, now this year came along. We have four beautiful babies uh, that we were able to uh, – they're not quite the caliber of, of those sires, but they're beautiful babies, and uh, now we're ready to go, and we've got five horses ready to race, and we can't race. So here we go again. So, yeah, it's been a crisis. Well, As I know, it has been for every every um, breeder and racing uh farm out there it, it's a, it's a tragic for all of us well hopefully we can get back to racing soon and you can get your horses on the track and then you know down the road get these uh these young ones ready to go as well yeah and i just i want everyone to really stay safe and just remember these guidelines please take care of yourself and your families Kate, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Top of the Stretch. You've given us some great information uh, to help us try to um, stay safe as we move through this. And as every day goes by, we learn something new, and hopefully we'll be uh, able to see the light at the tunnel sometime in the very near future. So thank you again, Kate. I, I, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Well, thank you very much, Frank, and God bless you and everyone. Thank you for listening to Top of the Stretch. Top of the Stretch podcasts are a presentation of the Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association.